Coming up on Home Dunk, we've got Bill Hancock, who is in charge of the college football playoff system, and he's going to attempt to explain it to me so that I can understand it. Let's uh, let's see how that works out. Plus, baseball writer, baseball guru, baseball prospectus co-founder, ESPN writer Christina Carl joins us. She knows a lot more about baseball than I will ever know, and she gives us the skinny on what's going on with baseball free agency and the trade market. It's John Moe talking to you on the Cast Upon Pods. Thank you, Open Mike Eagle, as always, for that theme song. I've been getting tweets and messages from people saying that that is a uh, a very severe earworm, which is a a wonderful thing, a credit to Mike Eagle. A couple housekeeping things before we dive into the show. I saw this great tweet by Bill Oakley. He's a a comedy writer who I follow on Twitter. He pointed out that on NPR uh, that morning, they had explained both what Star Wars was and what Charlie Brown Christmas was for listeners who might not be familiar with. And this is a public radio thing, you guys. This has been going on my entire public radio career. You know, I, I, had, a, I had a boss one time say, you need to tell people what a blog is. Well, you can't just mention what, you can't mention that it was on a blog. You have to say it's a personal weblog or a personal online diary. And I said, oh my God, We're going to have to define every word that we use, Um, but it's a public radio thing, and uh, I'm going to go in the opposite direction because this is a podcast and because I'm just tired of that way of thinking. So in this podcast and in future shows, there may be terms that I do not define. There may be players that I mention in the world of sport uh, for whom I do not identify a team or a, a history. Uh, if the name Lester comes up in baseball free agency conversations, it's John Lester of the Oakland A's, but, or now free agent, but if you don't know it, just Google it yourself and then get back in the conversation because I think you're going to get most of the references and I think we'll all be better for it. It's going to save us all some time and it won't drive me nuts. It's like if you ever, um, if you ever seen Dan Castellaneta on parks and recreation, uh, the actor who plays Homer Simpson actually, uh, and he, he plays on parks and rec, a public radio host and somebody mentions Batman and he says, you know, for listeners who might not know the Batman is a child's, uh, superhero character. So, I don't want to be that. I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to do that anymore. I don't think I've done it before, but I'm going to stop doing what I haven't already done. So uh, a couple things that are in the news that are kind of on my mind. Uh, we, we seem to now have arrived at a third uh, third way that the NFL has handled a violence story very, very poorly. 
I mean, we've already had the Ray Rice situation. Ray Rice uh, punched his fiance, was on camera doing so, uh, initially received a two-game suspension. Then there was a huge reaction of people getting upset about that. Then he received a more games suspension in a kind of indefinite limbo. Uh, then there were a bunch of conflicting stories about what Roger Goodell said he saw before issuing these suspensions and what other people claimed that he saw. Uh, and then uh, there was a, a, an, a hearing and he Ray Rice was reinstated because the NFL hadn't followed any kind of proper procedure because the NFL didn't know what it was doing and it was doing things for the wrong reasons. It was, uh, you know, and I've heard people say, well, you know, he's let him have his day in court. Let him, you know, let all these people just have their day in court. That's not how football works. That's not how uh, sports work. These players have uh, personal conduct clauses in their contracts. It's They are public figures. So don't ever talk about, well, the, the NFL punishment should match exactly what whatever the law says. That's not how it works. So anyway, uh, where Goodell really got in trouble was the, the NFL wasn't following any kind of policy. They were just going in the wind. Violence, mishandled violence reaction one. Mishandled violence reaction two, Adrian Peterson. A uh, horrible person who uh, beat the crap out of his son. Um, he was initially al- allowed to rejoin the team immediately. Uh, well, I think he was put on the put on the list. You know, he was kept out of a game one week and then was supposed to come back the next week. Then uh, everybody got upset. Then he was placed on paid leave, and then he got suspended by the NFL. And then now there's going to be another appeal. And it's another case of of reacting to a story rather than rather than really being out in front of it. The NFL doesn't know what it's doing, or is doing things uh, based on public reaction, or is doing things just to get through the next several moments. And then you have what is a smaller story, but I think is also significant. And I like things to travel in threes. Um, you have the story about the St. Louis Rams wide receivers who. Uh, before their game, when they when they came running out onto the field, they came out with the hands up, don't shoot gesture, which has become a well known gesture in support of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and uh, against the St. Louis Police Department, who uh, for whom Darren Wilson was. I guess Darren Wilson is now a former member of the the St. Louis Police Department, and uh, after this happened. Uh, there was outcry from some police organizations calling on the NFL to discipline these players. And uh, a, a shocking, <laughs> shocking statement in one of these press releases saying, uh, well, these players are exercising free speech. Well, guess what? We can exercise free speech too, the police said about themselves. But the whole point of free speech, it doesn't, it doesn't protect you from – you still – you still have consequences of what you say, right? But the one place you can't have consequences is from the government or government organizations like the police, you dummies. So anyway, so the players do this and some police organizations uh, get upset about it. And uh, the NFL, the NFL says these players will face no discipline whatsoever, but they screw that up too, because it's not like they come out in support of their players. They don't come out and say, hey, you know, we we stand by our guys. These guys are upset about it. They're human beings. They're part of that community. They're allowed to say what they want. They just say, oh, we're not going to get, we're not going to punish them for it, um, which is, 
which is really damning with uh, it's not even damning with faint praise. It's just sort of not supporting your employees uh, and the, the people who are laying themselves out and getting uh, getting severely injured uh, for the sake of the profits of your business. Um then the St. Louis Rams evidently reached out to this police organization and uh, and talked to them. And it was sort of a, well, we're sorry if you were upset by that. You know, sorry to hear you're bummed out kind of non-apology apology, uh, which the police then took to be an apology and announced that the Rams had apologized. And then the Rams said, no, we didn't. And then. The police organization was putting out tweets with Webster's definition of apology, and it just got so stupid. But the problem, I mean, the problem is that you left vagaries in your language. An NFL team, just like just like the Minnesota Vikings, just like the league itself, left enough vagaries that nobody knew what you were talking about. Nobody knew what was really being said. And all it came off as was just sort of covering for, uh, you know, to try to get in the least amount of trouble possible. The NFL, we have three cases here um, where the NFL doesn't know what to do in the face of violence. And it it just hems and haws and treads water. And uh, can you, by the way, can you hem without hawing? Or can you just haw? Must you always hem and haw? Or dilly-dallying? You know, can you dilly? I don't want to dally. I'm just going to dilly. All right. Back to the topic. Um, so the NFL doesn't really know what to do in the case of spousal abuse, in the case of child abuse, and in the case of its employees reacting to uh, someone being killed by the police. And when it comes to violence, though, you have to remember that the NFL is a multi-billion dollar industry founded on violence. This is a violence industry. And it's not even as crass as the fact that they make money off of the violence. And, I mean, what would football be without violence? It would be, I don't know, it would just be <laughs> just be Aaron Rodgers throwing passes, which would be cool, but wouldn't hold up. And it's not even that the, the NFL is trying to protect its investment and, uh, and is doing a, a sort of crass end around to... Uh, to keep all of its money and knows that it's doing something uh, evil either by negligence or omission or deliberation. No, it's just that it is a league of violence. It's they are of the institution of violence. It is the fabric of their lives. And I think I'm suspecting and I, and I almost am verging on giving the NFL a break here, which I, I don't do very often, but it's almost like asking Asking the NFL to really have a coherent policy about violence is like asking a wolf to recommend good vegan recipes. It's like asking Nicolas Cage what kind of movies one should turn down. You could ask them these things and they will just stare at you glass-eyed, not comprehending the words that you are saying. Uh, let's check in quickly with uh, with the college football rankings. The latest ones have been announced. Uh, they are in the for the college football playoff, Alabama, Oregon, 
TCU and Florida State. I'm very enthused about this because TCU is third. I don't know anything about their program, but I know they are called the Horned Frogs, and I think that is delightful. Ohio State is fifth. They're on the outside looking in, um, much to the consternation of my mother-in-law, who was up here for Thanksgiving, had Thanksgiving with us, watched the Ohio State-Michigan game. She's a huge Ohio State fan. She's from Columbus. And I had one of those moments of, you ever just see someone just rooting so hard for a team that you don't really root for, don't care about, and you think, how is that possible? Why are they getting so excited about such a random thing as Ohio State football? But then when you do it for your own team that you cheer for, it makes perfect sense. That is the conundrum of sports. Anyway, there's a lot about the college football, the brand new college football playoff system that I don't understand, and we're going to do something about that. College football season is really heating up. Uh, Things are getting exciting, and it's coming down to the wire for a lot of teams, and I don't know what's going on completely because this year there's a college football playoff, and it's new, and I don't get it. So I have some help in helping me get it, and who better than Bill Hancock, the executive director of the college football playoff. Mr. Hancock, hello. Hi, John. Thank you for inviting me to be on. Sure. Um, all right. Well, let's let's start, if we could, with the committee. Who is on the committee and how were they selected? These are 13 members. Uh, we did have one. We do have one person on leave now. Archie Manning had uh, needed to have back surgery, and so he's gone on leave. He will be back next year. Mm-hmm. But they were selected after nominations from all 10 of the conferences, and they were selected based on, first of all, their integrity. And then after we were, we had a pool of folks with high integrity, uh, and we created five classifications of people because we wanted diversity. We wanted diverse opinions on this group. And the classifications are folks with experience as players, coaches, uh, journalists, then university administrators, and then some current athletic directors. And then we looked at to get geographic diversity. We wanted folks from all four corners of the country and in between, and um, we came up with these thirteen, and they are they're they're everything we wanted: high integrity, uh, different perspectives, and uh, wisdom, uh, intelligence, uh, ability to, to work under scrutiny, and and knowledge of the game. Now, I I recognize some of the names. I recognize Pat Hayden and Archie Manning, like you said. Uh, what does Condoleezza Rice know about college football? Condoleezza Rice and Mike Gould uh, fit the category of university administrators. Uh, Dr. Rice was a provost at Stanford, of course, and Mike was the superintendent of the Air Force Academy. Um, both are tremendously knowledgeable about the game. Uh, Condi was in, in charge of athletics when she was in, at, at Stanford. Uh, she was involved in hiring uh, two coaches and a couple of athletic directors, I believe. So, you know, of course, she's a, she's a sports person. Uh, she gets it. She is extremely knowledgeable, and her judgment is uh, remarkable. And, of course, she's she's been under quite a bit more scrutiny than anyone will ever <laughs> deliver relative to college football, that's for sure. One would expect so, yeah. Um, all right, so these people get selected, 
And then how often do they meet and, and where do they meet? I keep imagining it's in a, a mountain fortress somewhere, but it's probably not. <laughs> uh, they meet in a hotel in uh, Grapevine, Texas, actually, not far from DFW Airport. Uh, uh-huh. They met four or five times during last winter and spring and summer in preparation for the selection meetings. And they fly into Dallas every, uh, every week. And they meet on Monday and Tuesday, and then they go home. And, of course, we have two more meetings to go. And why Grapevine, Texas? Um, DFW uh, provides great air service, uh, nonstops to almost everywhere in the country, central location. Mm. And our, our, our staff office happens to be there also, which certainly makes it convenient for us. Okay, so now let's let's get to the meat of it. They They go into this room. In a hotel in Grapevine, Texas, there is presumably a large table. What happens then? Probably good to talk, John, just a little bit about what happens before that every okay. weekend as they do their homework. Okay. Uh, the they, they, they watch games on television on Saturday. The current athletic directors, of course, attend their own team's games. And we issued tablets to them. So they each uh, take their tablets on Sunday and Monday morning, and they download games. And they watch them. Uh, we have a system where they can download what we call cut-down versions of games, which come without the commercials and without the delay between plays. Uh-huh. So they can watch a game in an hour or so. Mm. So they spend a lot of the weekend studying and uh, also looking at statistics and just the data about every team. Uh, then, they, then they come to Irving, uh, or Grapevine actually, and they start the process. And I'll be happy to describe that process for yeah. you if you'd like. Well, in, in just a moment, but uh, where can I get these one-hour versions of college football games? Because that sounds <laughs> great. Yeah, it's it's really fun. And uh, <laughs> Although, of course, I love the game and I love to watch games, but you can certainly see a lot more on these cut-down versions. Uh, there's, some, there's some conferences, I believe some of the conference networks make the cut-down versions available oh, maybe through their websites. i got to catch that. Okay, so they've... They've checked out all these games. Uh, they're they're knowledgeable. The games have been played, and then uh, then the talking starts. Yeah, there's a lot of debate. Um, we we hear initially we hear reports from what we call conference point persons. Uh, two committee members are assigned to each of the ten conferences, and then and also at, at the independent schools as a group: uh, BYU, Army, Navy, Notre Dame. And they give reports about their conferences at the start of the meeting uh, with those reports and questions that could take upwards of an hour and a half or two hours. And then they begin the process of voting the teams into the rankings. And what are they looking at? Because there's a lot of teams that have very similar records. So, so is it, what are the factors? Oh, boy, that's so true. There are a lot of teams, particularly as we get to the end of the season, that look alike in many ways. Uh, one of the great things about the committee is they can dig deeper than just the one-loss record to how the team compiled that record, uh, how did they perform in a certain game that they may have lost, or what about a, a significant victory, what happened in that game. And that's what the conference point persons report about. Of course, the, the members have also uh, seen plenty of games on television. Um, head-to-head competition. Results against common opponents. Uh, who did they play during the season? Also known as strength of schedule. Yeah. Uh, and then what? What other factors might have influenced the team's play? Was the 
was the weather bad? Was it windy, cold, rainy? Um, so they really and it's it's common sense. As you or I would sit down and try to decide who was better, I don't think we would say, "Oh, well, they're they're ten and two, and this other team is, you know, eight and four. So the ten and two team clearly has to be better." They, they, that's not how they operate. They, they have to dig deeper to find out how that ten and two team and that eight and four team got to be that way. So then, is there? So there are a lot of factors that they're looking at. Does every member of the committee have the same priority list of factors? Like, is there one factor that's more important than the others, and it's that way for all committee members? No, there's not, and that's the beauty of it. Because we have the five classifications of people because we wanted the different perspectives. We didn't have a one-person committee. We wanted mm-hmm. it to be a big committee with different perspectives. Uh, we have the coaches who can tell us how it looks from a coaching perspective. Uh, we, have a, we have a journalist who can view it from somebody who's been covering games uh, for 30 years as a newspaper person. Um, so they all have different perspectives, and, and their subjective opinions then are combined to produce the rankings. Okay. So what about somebody like Pat Hayden, who is the athletic director at USC in the Pac-12 conference? Wouldn't he, even if he wasn't aware of it, have some bias because of that? We check our hats at the door. Um, We have a ceremonial hat rack outside the door, and (laughs) there's a hat on there for every person, and they they literally check their hats at the door, and symbolically... Condi Rice doesn't wear a hat. Come on. That she checks her hat at the door. We, right. we gave her a hat and said, Connie, here's your hat. Please <laughs> check it at the door. And, and she laughed and said, I'll be happy to do that. Uh, but I don't see bias. I don't perceive bias. I, I, I watch it every week, and I don't see it. Uh, high integrity, good judgment, uh, committed to doing what's best for the game. That's, that's the way this committee is. And so, okay, so they have these meetings, and then they come out of them with a – a top how many are how many how long of a list do they make they vote the teams into a ranking one through 25 okay and of those the top four will will play in the playoffs that's right now uh, i want to get to the playoffs in a moment but what is the point in doing those rankings all through the year when the only time it's really going to matter is the last one we had a lot of conversation about that and you know the fact is that uh, college football fans uh, enjoy their top 25. It's a it's a tradition in the game, and and we thought it would it was important to uh, to allow the fans to have that. Also, we wanted we didn't want to just surprise people with four teams on selection weekend without any conversation beforehand. Okay. Um, and, and one more thing on that, it kind of goes hand in hand with with allowing the fans to have their rankings, but. If we didn't produce rankings regularly, someone else would. But those rankings might not be the same as ours. Yeah, well, and someone so else we always has. Someone always has, and they, and they always will. But we, we didn't want to create any misperceptions based on some other ranking that somebody might say, might say was close to the committee ranking. We wanted to have real committee rankings. So. You know, for years there have been there have been the different polls, and then a national champion is sort of agreed upon in a kind of collective <laughs> thought process that that uh, is that many people see as flawed. Thus, the college football playoff. Um, but is the advantage of this over the old system 
just you, you keep coming back to the diversity of the committee members. Is that the real advantage here, what you're saying? Well, obviously, two more teams are able to participate. Um, and the, the process of a committee of folks sitting around a table debating, uh, we know will yield um, a, a group of teams that are, that are the best four. Mm. And I want to be a little uh, careful because the BCS got it right. Uh, most of the time, I think nine out of the last 12 years, our rankings agreed with uh, the media rankings. And we know, of course, the media can't be wrong. <laughs> but at any, but right, sir. at any rate, it was time to move on. And I, I have a license to say something about the media. Since I used to be a, a newspaper guy, I grew up in a newspaper <laughs> family and was editor of a newspaper for many years. So All right. uh, I have a lot of respect for media, and that was, that was a joke. Yeah, yeah, um, but fact is, this... The BCS did good things for the game, but it was time to move on. And the 14 tournament lets us keep the emphasis on the regular season, and it lets us also keep the bowl experience uh, from top to bottom in, in the bowl world. So four, four teams, oh, I like to say it doesn't go too far. Uh, I think it just goes far enough. How loud is the complaint going to be from team number five after that last poll, though? Loud. Really loud. I mean, is there any way there there is no way I think to objectively arrive at these best teams there's just a matter of coming up with the best subjective way is that right There is no way to keep team 5 happy <laughs> and the worst thing anyone could do is try to make everyone happy yeah. We have an event that folks want to participate in teams athletes coaches fans want to be a part of. It's the top event in college football, and Team 5 probably will just be a, just a skosh behind Team 4, and we'll be very disappointed. We yeah. get that. Just like Team 3 was in the BCS, and just like you know Team 9 and 17 and on down the road in, in any size of bracket in, in any in any kind of tournament, NCAA, any NCAA tournament for sure. Yeah, Team 67 or 68 in the basketball tournament. Pretty disappointed. Pretty disappointed. Is this uh, all right? So I, I think I got a better grip on it now, and it's actually simpler than I was expecting. I, I thought there would be all sorts of like uh, weighted ballots and elimination rounds and, and everything. I thought it would be much more like British Parliament, but it's just uh, <laughs> it's just some people in a room talking. Yeah. Okay. Talking, talking, and then and talking, and then sticking to a, a discipline protocol yeah. to vote the teams in the rankings. Yeah. Um, is this uh, is this the only year it's going to be four four teams? I mean, are we going to look for eight or sixteen down the road? We are con- contracted for a four team tournament for twelve years. Okay, and um, I I don't see that changing. There's no talk in our group about changing. All right, so avoid being number five college football teams who I know are listening to the podcast. Um, I, I think I got it. Bill Hancock, executive director of the college football playoff. Thank you so much for the clarification. John, you're great. Thanks again for having me on. Take care. Christina Carl knows a lot more about baseball than me or you or most people. She's forgotten more about baseball this morning than I've ever known. Christina Carl is one of the founders of Baseball Prospectus. She writes for ESPN. Christina Carl, hello. Hello, John. 
So uh, free agency, uh, we're, we're going to talk about just off-season deals in general, but let's start with free agency. It always seems to me like a like a thunderstorm, like there's gathering clouds and then there's a terrific lightning bolt and some thunder and then it's all drizzle after that. Like there's always seems to be like the, the, the rash of huge signings that then sets everything else in motion. Is that the case this year? Absolutely, and except this year, I mean, it all depends on who does John Lester want to play for next year? Uh-huh. How, for how much money? And after that happens, you're going to see a ton of moves like involving pitching, both in terms of free agent signings and then also maybe a trade for Jeff Samarjo or the like. So John Lester, who are the contenders right now? Where where might he end up? Uh, well, I mean, it's really, I mean, everybody really thinks that, you know, that Boston is the automatic favorite because like he would go back he would immediately step back into the ace role it's pretty clear from their making the deals for both pablo sandoval and hanley ramirez last week that they're really they they believe they're going to be right back in the thick of things this coming season so but they don't have a rotation effectively they really need to find at least two good starting pitchers to be take themselves seriously in the at east and we're going to see if they, they can really swing it. I mean, that's the thing that's very interesting is whether or not after making those kinds of investments in those two free agents last week, are they going to go for a third? Mm. It'd be pretty awesome to see, but hey, we'll, we'll have to see if they can swing it. We'll see where that goes. Let's talk about the Red Sox then, because they've already opened up the checkbook, like you said, for Pablo Sandoval. Uh, they, they bought themselves a panda, and they got, uh, they got Hanley Ramirez. Are they the big spenders this offseason? Well, they're already the big spenders, and it's almost kind of a question of like whether or not anybody else is, is willing to spend that kind of money. Now, you know, I mean, clearly the Yankees have some major holes and should also have money to spend. It's a question is whether or not anybody wants to go to a team where they're, you know, like you'd be signing with the Yan- a Yankees club that is already so old and already burdened with so many big contracts that do you really want to sign on to what might be a sinking ship? And with the kind of budget they already have. A lot of guys may not want to go there. Well, see, that's that's interesting because the Yankees have always been the the default, you know, once once another team develops a player and gets them really good, the Yankees will then overpay for him, and, and that's how business is done. So you're saying it's not necessarily... I mean, John Lester can get paid anywhere he goes. Is it not necessarily a matter of who writes the biggest checks anymore? It's not really, yeah, it's not necessarily always just a matter of, like, who has the most money. To have. A lot of it is, particularly when you're talking about a guy who's making a decision, it's a nice position to be in, but, you know, like, getting to pick where you're going to make, you know, eight large a year. Right. Well, boo-hoo for you, but <laughs> uh, pretty pretty nice situation. But then you can start, like, whether or not you're making 10 or $12 million, at that point you start making a decision. You can certainly afford to start making your decision on the basis of, where do I want to live, and where do I want to contend, and what are the state's taxes like? And contention is a big key, and so that's where you're going to see people who are willing to sign on with a team like the Giants or a team with a great track record for contending rather than sign on with a team where they're, you know, I think everybody anticipates they don't want to, they don't want to sign on to a losing battle. Right. What about the Royals? Came close in the World Series, but also a small market team. But I understand they're they're loosening up the purse strings a little bit. What, what's on course for them for the offseason? You have to think that they're going to spend some money. I mean, if, if this is a one-and-done phenomenon, that would almost be not quite as disappointing as not going into the postseason between 1985, after 1985 until last year. But 
they have to do something. And you would think that the family, that the Glass family, they have the money to spend on free agents. They have the money to invest in this team, and they really do need to add it. I mean, they're somebody who should also be in the market for starting pitching because they are, James Shields is a free agent, and they need to figure out how they're going to find somebody who can throw 220 to 240 innings. Is there is there a general thing that is in fashion right now for what teams are looking for? I mean, is it power hitting? Is it like what what's the general feeling out there of the kinds of guys who are going to get the big deals and get the important deals? Well, the interesting thing is is that whereas a lot of people right now are talking about going out and getting starting pitching in, with the offensive levels declining, one of the things that's been very interesting is to see how everybody is moving early on the big bats that are on the free agent market. Mm -hmm. So Sandoval, Hanram, but also Russell Martin. And, you know, that's where you're not going to be able to find that kind of, you know, Victor Martinez was a free agent for about, what, 45 seconds, if that. I mean, promptly went back to the Tigers. So there are not that many big bats in a tough run scoring environment available. So teams that are looking to help their offense, they're not going to be able to find a lot of, you know, like instant fits on the free agent market. They're going to find a lot of declining veterans who are not going to be able to answer all of their needs, and there's going to have to be a lot of adaptive management, whether it's platoons or, you know, like looking to younger players. I mean, that would be one of the situations where you got to love the situation of the Cubs, where even though they're not a winning team right now, that they have so much young position player talent on the way up and about ready to make it to the majors, it may not be 2015, but by 2016, they're going to be so they're already stacked with more prospects than they know what to do with. But by 2016, they could be in a situation where they could make, be making deals for some of the best talent in baseball if they have a win now, right now kind of guy that they need to go out and get. And what about the Giancarlo Stanton deal? Huge deal, biggest uh, biggest dollar amount in baseball history, I believe. Um, what does that do to to baseball in general? How does that change the marketplace? Well, I don't think it changes the marketplace because I think Giancarlo Stanton very sensibly got the kind of money he's worth if he chooses to stay with the Marlins. Because keep in mind that deal is segmented so that he can bail out after you know like halfway through and decide to go be a free agent and make potentially even more money. So that I think from his perspective was a great idea because. The Loria family has not been particularly consistent about their commitment to keep talent or keep a winning product on the field since you know they basically landed into a World Series win their first year there, and after ever since have been up and down to be generous because there haven't been that many ups. So that's a situation where Stanton got his value, what he would have gotten pretty close to of what he'd gotten on open market, if not more, with some teams, but. He gets the chance to walk away if he decides he doesn't want to be a Marlin anymore. Um, and then let's let's talk about trades here. Um, and it's it's tricky talking about trades because it is inherently so speculative. But what are some teams? What are some players we should keep our eyes on uh, that might make some big waves here pretty soon? Well, I think everybody is interested in seeing what the A's are going to do with Jeff Samarja since he's only got one year to go until free agency. And after they made the deal to. Um, send Josh Donaldson to the Blue Jays. They're really obviously in a kind of retooling, if not full rebuild mode, where they really they, they just aren't going to be holding on to a guy where they're, he's on short time and he's almost gone. And You know, they'd probably rather have the talent they might get in a deal than the first-round pick. 
the teams that obviously make sense to them. I mean, say, you know, like I know in here in Chicago, there's a lot of positive sentiment for the White Sox getting in on a trade for him. But the White Sox don't have a lot of young talent to be able to parlay into a great deal. So whether or not he's, whether or not they can put something together, we'll have to see, or whether or not it's another Billy Bean three-way special where he gets the prospect he wants from some other party and the White Sox get some margin and somebody else gets something from the White Sox that they actually want. You know, we'll see. But that's one of the fun things that, you know, with winter meetings a week away, we're going to get to be able to look forward to is that I won't be surprised at all if we see some interesting three-way trades. I won't be surprised at all if, you know, like we see some RJ even come back to Chicago. But the thing that's got to wait there is, again, that kind of trigger effect, as you mentioned at the outset, where, you know, everybody's going to see what John Lester does to the market. And once he signs, then a lot of things are going to start moving. You know, I... I'm paying attention to the the Lester's and the you know some of these other guys Sandoval when he signed, but you know a lot more about baseball than I do. Are there any uh, like minor signings, like you know things that that weren't splashed across the ESPN homepage in huge type that uh, that you find really intriguing? Well, I think the, the the move that was underrated at the time, only because it was just kind of a surprise, was just that. Russell Martin signed so early, and he signed with the Blue Jays. And that's because, you know, what headlines there were generated, we're talking about, like, you know, he's a good game manager, he's a smart catcher, he's a good receiver, all of that kind of stuff. More fundamentally, a guy with a 400 on base percentage is so hard to find anymore, so that getting him was, you know, really, it's going to be very interesting to see, like, the kind of offense that the Blue Jays can put on the field, because he's, he's just a tremendous on-base asset, and they're going to be able to score a ton of runs with him, with Donaldson and Batista both hitting for power and Encarnacion. It's it's going to be such a fun team to watch if you're a Blue Jays fan. And finally, Christina Carl, I'm a I'm a Mariners fan, and I and I see that they've that they're in the process of picking up Nelson Cruz from the Orioles. Should I be delighted? Should I be uh, trepidatious? Or should I be horrified? I think, I think, you know, again, the year he just had with the Orioles, I mean, again, that Sony money, you shouldn't weep for it. They had to spend the money somehow. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a lot of trepidation. I mean, the real problem is that, you know, like much like other great right-handed power hitters coming to that ballpark, it's going to be tough. It's just going to be tough to expect for him to produce any kind of numbers when, you know, it's not a place where you're going to see huge, you know, home run seasons. I mean, Adrian Beltre was probably the worst example, yeah. but, you know, of a guy who, that's a, that's a potentially Hall of Fame caliber ball player. He had a lousy stretch in Seattle because Seattle is a tough place for a right-handed power hitter to hit. I was going to say, uh, it, either Adrian Beltre or Richie Sexton are our cautionary tales of uh, <laughs> big oh, free I, agents who go there to die. I, I think Richie Sexton would be the one you'd really just prefer to forget. Yeah. That a polite conversation. Beltre, <laughs> because he had a career afterwards, whereas Sexton right. was a big guy who just broke down over time as Richie's, well. And yeah. Richie Sexton, you're not even allowed to talk about on the radio. We can talk about him on a podcast. That's you know, The FCC's okay with that. <laughs> if you bleep out his name, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> if you bleep out his batting average. Christina Carl from ESPN, thank you so much. Definitely a pleasure. And finally, turning to Norwegian men's pro basketball, it looks like Gimle BBK is in first place. 
can't see. I'm surprised at a 7-1 record. Oscar Aliens and Trumsa moving up uh, right behind them. Looks like Centrum. Centrum. Centrum's the Philadelphia 76ers of Norwegian pro basketball. Uh, individual player standings. It looks like uh, Matthew Adekaponia of Australia now playing for Nidaros, of course, is leading the league 29.1 points a game. Nice work. Keon Lawrence of Trumsa coming up right behind him at 25.1. Those guys are going to be neck and neck. You know the Nidaros and Trumsa rivalry. It's going to get pretty crazy here pretty soon. You can find a lot of podcasts just like mine, but different, possibly better, at least different, over at infiniteguest.org. Mike Eagle's uh, Secret Skin podcast is over there. There's podcasts about cooking. There's podcasts about manners. There's podcasts about all number of things, and they are delightful because uh, they come from my colleagues. Home Dunk is produced by Nina Patak, and help comes from various people in the engineering department all around the spacious, luxurious master headquarters of Minnesota Public Radio and American Public Media. You can uh, you can write to me with your thoughts over at uh, jmo at mpr.org. That's M as in Mary. And um, yeah, yeah, do that. Find me on Twitter at John Moe. Find Infinite Guest on Twitter at Infinite Guest. I'm John Moe. Bye now.